Reflections on the Bible by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 1 As you may know, the Bible isn't what we once thought it was. I have a good friend, and he was raised fundamentalist and went to a fundamentalist seminary, and then uh, midway through his seminary training, he changed seminaries and went to a slightly more open seminary, open to new scholarly inquiries into the Bible. And the professor, the first class he sat in, the professor got up and began to talk about the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The professor began to talk about the the uh, Yahwist author and the Eloist author and the priest and the authors of the priestly accounts and how the redactors in somewhere between 1000 and 600 BC uh, reworked these materials and so on. Anyway, my friend broke out in a cold sweat. He said it was the first time it really sank into him that this text had not been written word by word by Moses. So most of you probably by now know that that's the nature of the material. And because I have no interest in that, and I don't want to talk about it, the Bible was put together, now two, two ways of looking at it. Uh, the Bible was put together with staples and scotch tape in the first instance by people who had a theological axe to grind, and that's true. Another way to look at it is that the spirit of revelation or the, or the Holy Spirit that hovered over the coming into being of this text was hovering over the, the redactors and the editors as they put it together, as well as over the writers who wrote it. And I believe the latter, so that I have no problem with understanding this as a, as a piece of inspired writing, even though it, it's, it's a little bit like uh, somebody said about laws, legislation. They said if you, li if you have an appreciation for either sausages or law, you shouldn't watch either one of them being made. The Bible's a little bit that way too. If we were uh, if we were present to some of these uh, decisions, uh, we might not uh, we we might raise an eyebrow too. But uh, the final product is an amazing text, and what I want to try to argue today is that it is, as we have always been told, a unique text, and it stands out with respect to the other uh, kinds of stories that may have some of the same features to them. What Christians call the Old Testament, which is the Hebrew Scriptures. The first five books have, depending on where you are in them, three or four major contributors. And then later we get into the Chronicles and the, and the history books, all of which are written with a theological point of view. And then there's the wisdom literature and the Psalms and the Proverbs. And then finally the Hebrew Bible ends with the, with the prophets. And uh, we'll spend a little time on the prophets today, and then we'll look at the New Testament. Uh, so that's the way of covering my tracks on that. For those of you who haven't been around, this is where the rub is probably going to come in this morning. Uh, for the last couple of years, I have been increasingly taken by some research and analysis done by a Stanford scholar whose name is René Girard. So he has analyzed culture based on his work as a literary critic, analyzing text and so on. And in the course of doing that, he picked up the Bible and he said to himself, my God, this is, the, this is the only text I've ever laid eyes on that actually decodes the lie at the heart of culture. So he began to write about that 
even people who have been attending to the biblical text for a long time are finding Gerard's work quite provocative. Biblical research up until 20 years ago left the scholars with the question, how do we break the news to the people in the pews? Well, the research that, has, that Gerard has launched and that has flowed from Gerard's work raises a second question, which is how do the people in the pews get the news to the people in the streets? And both those questions are essential questions for a mature understanding of what this text might mean for us. So we'll try to keep those questions in the air as we go through today. I think it's important to understand what the scholars are doing, but the scholars are not the ones who are going to get to the heart of this material. Uh, they, they can help us get to the heart of the material. They can clear out a lot of the dead wood that prevents us from getting to the heart of the material. But it's really finally not the scholarly mind uh, that is going to have this text open itself up to it, uh, but the mind of faith, really, uh, the mind that is paying attention uh, in another way. Uh, as much as I admire the scholars, envy them in some way, uh, and admire them and use their work all the time, really what we want to do is, is to be able to get something out of, of these texts in the way that Jesus got something out of them, in the way that Jeremiah got something out of them, the way Paul and the, and the Christian evangelists got something out of them, so that the scholars can help us with that, but it's, it's finally not a scholarly undertaking. Maybe we'll set the tone by quoting to you from Martin Buber, those of you who don't know him, Martin Buber is, I think, one of the great religious souls, minds of our time. He called himself a, cult, a, a religious anthropologist, but one of the, I think, important people of our time, of our century. Anyway, here's what he said about the Bible. The Jewish Bible, that's, that's what we uh, Christians call the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible has always approached and still approaches every generation with the claim that it must be recognized as a document of the true history of the world. That is to say, of the history according to which the world has an origin and a goal. The Jewish Bible demands that the individual fit his own life into this true history so that I may find my own origin in the origin of the world and my own goal in the goal of the world. Now there's an undertaking for you. I tell that to the vocational counselors. Then he goes on to say, man of today resists the scriptures because he cannot endure revelation. To endure revelation is to endure this moment full of possible decisions. To respond to and be responsible for every moment. Man of today resists the scriptures because he no longer wants to accept responsibility. He thinks he is venturing a great deal, yet he industriously evades the one real adventure that of responsibility. Let me share a metaphor with you. Two metaphors have to do with the Bible. One is from Karl Barth, great Protestant theologian of the 20th century. And he said, reading the Bible is like looking out the window of a building from above down onto the street and seeing this diverse crowd of people down on the street speaking various languages that you cannot understand and shading their eyes from the glare and gesturing wildly and talking with one another about something that's happening over the top of the building that you can't see. And what you try to do by looking at them and interpreting their gestures and trying to translate their language is to figure out what it is they're looking at. So it's that kind of an operation. What are they so excited about? 
the novelist Walker Percy talks about the difference between people who are on to something and people who are not. What are they on to, these people out there in the street? What are they on to? The biblical people. Well, that's one metaphor. <clears throat> the other one is from America's poet laureate. The poem's called A Hole in the Floor. The carpenters made a hole in the parlor floor. And I'm standing, staring down into it now. Richard Wilbur doesn't use the word carpenter without realizing that it sets off Christian connotations. The carpenters made a hole in the parlor floor. And I'm standing, staring down into it now at four o'clock in the evening and as Slimon stood when his shovel knocked at the crowns of Troy. Slimon was an amateur archaeologist who discovered the ruins of the Trojan War, of the Troy. So the carpenters made a hole in the part of the floor, and now he's lo looking underneath there. A clean-cut sawdust sparkles on the gray, shaggy last, and there is a cluster of shavings from the time when the floor was laid. They are silvery gold, the color of Hesperian apple paring. Kneeling, I look in under where the joists go into hiding. It's an important verb, kneeling. What's this all about, this journey? A pure street, faintly littered with bits and strokes of light, enters the long darkness where its parallels will meet. The radiator pipe rises in middle distance like a shuttered kiosk, standing where the only news is night. Here, it's not painted green as it is in the vis visible world. For God's sake, what am I after? Some treasure, or tiny garden, or that untrodden place, the house's very soul, where time has stored our footbeats and the long skein of our voices? Not these, but the buried strangeness which nourishes the known. That spring from which the floor lamp drinks now a wilder bloom. There's a little image for you. The spring from which the floor lamp drinks now the wilder bloom, inflaming the damask love seat and the whole dangerous room. End of poem. I'm particularly fond of this, the word dangerous in the last line. Now, one comes up out of that experience that, now he's talking about the carpenter make the whole part of the floor, but the carpenter didn't do it by himself. The carpenter was the incarnation of the whole biblical thrust. So really it is with the, with, with, it is the weight of the Bible incarnated and consummated, as I believe, in the Jesus event that has made a hole in the part of the floor. And when one goes down in to investigate what that is all about, one comes back up and sees the room in a different way. The damask love seat and the dangerous room and one is a little more alert and alive to life. At least that's the hope, I think, the promise of the poem. I think probably today I will hear myself saying, this is the most important text in the Bible, about five times, or maybe more. I have to, but I believe that, you see. <laughs> and this, is the, this, this one I'm about to quote to you is the most important text in the Bible. It's from Deuteronomy. Now, in Deuteronomy, Moses is... There's a, there's a genre shared by both the biblical and non-biblical ancient traditions, a genre which is the last discourse or last sort of last will and testament in a verbal way or written way, a spiritual last testament of the great leader. And, and Deuteronomy has that. Moses is about to depart the scene, and before he does that, he sums up uh, the, uh, the law 
and uh, he hands it over to the people of Israel. And uh, it's nowhere better summed up than this. After he has given some summary, he says, I set before you, therefore, life and death, blessing or curse. Choose you, therefore, life, that you and your descendants may live. Now, that's what the Bible is all about. The Bible is all about helping us choose life. It has to lead to greater life. It has to lead to more freedom. Two of the prominent scholars of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Albright and Mon, who contributed to the anchor commentary on, uh, on Matthew, say that the English translation of the word gospel should be the word freedom. If we really want to feel in the English language what that word gospel meant to the people who first used it, we should translate it freedom. It meant freedom. And this passage from Moses, he says, life is what it's about. So he goes on. Choose you therefore life, that you and your descendants may live in the love of God, obeying his voice, clinging to him. For in this your life consists, and on this depends your long stay in the land which Yahweh promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, the promised land consists of living in the love of God. The promised land finally is not a piece of real estate, nor is it a a uh, heavenly reward. Both of those might play into it from time to time, but that is not what it's all about. What the promised land is, is living in the love of God. To live in the love of God. So to choose life so that one can live in the love of God. Now the problem with choosing life is that we, uh, we're not ready to make the choice. As most of you know, I, somebody that's very important to me it, uh, said to me one time, uh, uh, do what makes you come alive. It was very important for me to hear that. And that was in my late 20s. That was a risky enough time for me to hear it. I mean, I could have waited five years probably before I heard it. But certainly I couldn't have heard it five years earlier. If you asked me when I was 20, if somebody said when I was 20, go do what makes you come alive, I wouldn't. It's hard to choose life. Sometimes we do things that seems like choosing life is just ridiculous. Popular American culture is in the business now of trying to choose life with absolutely no direction, no, no counseling on the subject, and going in every conceivable direction, not noticeably choosing life. So it's a difficult choice. What, what's it mean to choose life? We need, the reason this Bible is so thick is because uh, it's filled with case histories of choices that have looked like life turned out not to be. So it's a difficult choice to choose life. In this passage, Moses says, it's the love of God. Real life, full life, is to live in the love of God. C.S. Lewis said heaven is an acquired taste, but one doesn't uh, learn to do that overnight. But why don't I live in the love of God? In the 99.9% uh, .9 of my life, when, or I don't mean to make public confessions, but whatever the percentage is, it's a high one, in which I'm not living in the love of God, why not? And I want to use a Flannery O'Connor short story. Flannery O'Connor, a modern short story writer who died 25 years ago, novelist and short story writer, and she wrote a short story entitled uh, The Displaced Person. In it, she depicts a scene where a, a Polish man shows up on this little farm in the rural south. And Flannery O'Connor is presenting a picture of people caught up in their little sociodrama 
on one hand, and on the other hand, the hope or the image or the idea of somebody living more like it would be like to live in the love of God. So there are two figures in this short story who are completely preoccupied with what? That's the question. What is it that preoccupies me, distracts me from living the love of God? This short story would say, uh, if I can call it this, this short story would say, it's the human sociodrama. I get so fascinated with the chess game of the human melodrama that I don't stop to realize that uh, it's possible to live in the love of God instead of uh, generating these little fascinations in the sociodrama. So the two characters in this story, who are, there, there are a number of them, but the two prominent ones who are caught up in the sociodrama, are Mrs. Shortley and Mrs. McIntyre, the owner of the farm and a woman that works for her. And the image of something else in the short story is represented by the peacock and uh, a, a priest who has a fascination for the peacock. Now let me just present to you a couple of scenes from the short story. The peacock was following Mrs. Shortley up the road to the hill where she meant to stand. Moving one behind the other, they looked like a complete procession. Mrs. Shortley's arms were folded in front of her as she mounted the prominence. She might have been the giant wife of the countryside, come out at some sign of danger to see what the trouble was. She stood on two tremendous legs with the grand self-confidence of a mountain and rose up narrowing bulges of granite to two icy blue points of light that pierced forward, surveying everything. So there she stands, a force to be reckoned with, glaring out of these two icy blue points of light and seeing everything. And this is a procession, would be a complete procession. The, the peacock is the Christ figure in the, in the story. And the complete procession would be any one of us in all of our gathered self-confidence and all of that Christ business following dutifully along behind. Surveying everything, and the next sentence says, she ignored the white afternoon sun, which was creeping behind a ragged wall of cloud as if it pretended to be an intruder, and cast her gaze down the red clay road that turned off from the highway. She's surveying everything except she was ignoring the sun in the sky. It was that kind of eagle eye that was ignoring. The peacock stopped behind her. His tail, glittering green, gold, and blue in the sunlight, lifted just enough so that it would not touch the ground. It flowed out on either side like a floating train, and his head on the long blue reed-like neck was drawn back as if his attention were fixed in the distance on something no one else could see. Now what Mrs. Shortley is glaring at is the arrival into the little social unit that she has carefully tended so as to milk from it uh, the best benefits for herself, that little social unit now is being in, intruded upon by a refugee from the death camps in Poland right after World War II. And she's glaring out there trying to figure out what this new intrusion might mean in terms of this little social order that she's been tending to. And the peacock is looking off, seeing something no one else can see, seeing perhaps the world in which one can live in the love of God and not in all of that. A little while later it says, the peacock stood still as if he had just come down from some sun-drenched height to be a vision for them all. 
and nobody was looking. And why not? Because they were caught up in the sociodrama. A couple more little passages just to draw this out a little better. At one point, Mrs. Shortley is again watching this scene. It's slightly changed, but she stood a while longer reflecting her unseeing eyes directly in front of the peacock's tail. He had jumped into the tree and his tail hung in front of her, full of fierce planets with eyes that were each ringed in green and set against a sun that was gold in one second's light and salmon-colored in the next. She might have been looking at a map of the universe, but she didn't notice it any more than she did the spots of sky that cr cracked the dull green of the tree. The peacock flies up, this magnificent tail flows down right in front of her eye, and she does not see it. And it might have been the map of the universe. How would you like to have a map of the universe? I mean, the spiritual map of the universe. How would you like to have it laid in your lap? And you, you know, turn to the sports section. It's that kind of world. Why is it that it's right there? It's right there. You don't see it. And why don't we see it? She's trying to figure out the, the next move in the sociodrama. She was having an inner vision. She was seeing the 10 million billion of them, the refugees, pushing their way into new places over here. She was working that out. She didn't have time for the map of the universe. There's a priest who comes around the farm, and he visits Mrs. McIntyre, the owner of the farm, he arranged for the refugee to come and work there. And he always tries to get a little talk in about the sacraments or the uh, doctrines of the church or something. But he's taken a fascination to this peacock. And when he sees the peacock, his mind drifts off the conversation. He's the exact opposite of Mrs. Shortley and Mrs. McIntyre. When he sees the peacock, he forgets this other thing and watches the peacock. And as Mrs. McIntyre continues to talk about the problem with the Polish family and what it's, you know, what all that's about, so he says, the cock stopped suddenly, and curving his neck backward, he raised his tail and spread it with a shimmering, timorous noise. Tears of small, pregnant suns floated in a green-gold haze over his head. The priest stood transfixed, his jaw slack. Mrs. McIntyre wondered where she had ever seen such an idiotic old man. What's he looking at? What's he watching? Why isn't he watching what's happening in the center ring? Christ will come like that, he said in a loud, gay voice and wiped his, mouth over, his hand over his mouth and stood there gaping. Christ will come like that. Will look like some sort of mildly eccentric but otherwise ordinary uh, barnyard creature and then suddenly the tail will come up and the revelation will be right there in front of you. You can't miss it. Or can you? He's not missing it. Christ will come like that, he says. Christ in the conversation embarrassed her the way sex had embarrassed her mother. The old man, she went on and on about what's happened. The old man didn't seem to hear her. His attention was fixed on the cock who was taking minute steps backward, his head against the spread tail. The transfiguration, he murmured. She had no idea what he was talking about. Mr. Gwizak didn't have to come here in the first place, she said. Mr. Gwizak is the Polish refugee. He didn't have to come here in the first place. She repeated, emphasizing each word. The old man smiled absently. He came to redeem us, he said, and blandly reached for her hand and shook it and said he must go. 
Well, now there's a picture of two people inhabiting the same cosmos and having two totally different experiences. Now, one of them is a little bit closer to living in the love of God than the other. Well, it's actually two, two people that are caught up in the melodrama. So I offer that as a little story to talk about what it is that keeps us from living in the love of God. And it is the sociodrama. Perhaps I should try to do here some little version of Girard's understanding. Let's imagine ourselves, since we're talking about Genesis and the beginning of the world, let's imagine ourselves, uh, forget the Bible, let's imagine ourselves at the dawn of human existence. All of us will be a tribe, you see. We're groping our way into some kind of tribal existence. We can only become an identifiable tribe or people or common community by having something that we share. Now, the likelihood in the first instance of us sharing something like a, a respect for the Bill of Rights is not high. It's not high. It's not likely that we would find the thing on which we can agree at the upper end of the ethical scale. All we need is something we can agree on. It doesn't matter. Technically, structurally, anthropologically, it doesn't matter what we agree on, what makes us, what uh, seals us as a community, what, uh, what identifies us with each other, doesn't really technically matter if you remove the moral thing from it. All that matters is that we find a way to become a community. Not likely we're going to do it by, in the John 9 text, you know, it's love one another. Gerard argues that what happens in that setting is that the agitations that are inevitable in human interaction uh, begin to disrupt whatever embryonic social cohesion there is, and that those hostilities are resolved when they reach a certain kind of a boiling point. You could almost think of it as an anthropological instinct is triggered, which causes what Girard calls a polarization, so that all of the random hostilities begin to focus on one person. And so that person becomes the substitute in every little hostile situation for the, the other party. So everybody polarizes, and it produces what Girard calls the unanimity minus one of the scapegoat situation. So there's the problem. And that person can be a person who has a physical discrepancy, a mental discrepancy, a moral discrepancy. It can be t completely random. It doesn't matter in terms of social formation. To make a long story short, what Girard argues is that we don't know how to form... Co and that's, you see, that's the primitive version. Girard argues that we don't know how to form culture without scapegoat victim. To this day, we do not know how to form, form culture without scapegoat victim. What brings the nation together better than having a, an enemy, having a shared object of contempt that makes us a community again. So the sum and substance of his argument is that we depend on shared objects of contempt for our social coherence. Other stories about, other myths about the creation of the world can be found to reveal something of this same mechanism but they don't reveal it as fully as the Hebrew Scriptures and the Gospels reveal it. The Old Testament is far more candid about what's really going on. The Old Testament 
isn't as candid as the Gospels, or as the, the early Old Testament as the prophets later. But all of them are more candid than the myths. Now, the classic city is Rome, and the founding of Rome happened when Romulus killed his brother. They built the boundaries, and Remus crossed the boundaries, and Romulus killed him. And Rome became a city when the victim was, one of the brothers was killed. Now compare that to the first story of the effects of the fall in Genesis. The first story of anything happening after the fall is that Cain kills Abel. But the Bible takes Abel's side in the story. And Cain goes off to build the first city, but he goes off under a condemnation. So the Bible at the very beginning is going in a different direction. It's not celebrating the one who killed his brother and founded a city. It's saying the one who killed his brother and founded the city is, is going the wrong way. Don't go that way. If, when we face a situation like that, we as biblical people, when we face a situation like that, we're going to stay with Abel. Not too long after that, after Abraham is introduced in the, in the story of Genesis, we get that uh, amazing story of Abraham and Isaac. God says, sacrifice your only son. Now, Isaac is, if we forget for a minute, uh, Ishmael. Isaac is the, is the guarantor of the promise. The promise is that Abraham's line will go on forever. He's now asked to kill his son. Now, what we have to get used to is that what makes that divine command unusual is, first of all, that it's coming from the God of the Hebrews. The God of the Canaanites and the Moabites was issuing that uh, routinely. The other thing that makes it unusual, anthropologically unusual is that its firstborn is not being asked to be sacrificed uh, at his birth, but after he has already grown to some maturity. The point of all this is to say child sacrifice was a commonplace in antiquity, particularly the firstborn. Now, the firstborn was simply a sacrifice given to propitiate the God, in part in gratitude, but in also in part in, as a bargain. Now, we'll give you the firstborn if you'll give us more children. So the sacrifice of the firstborn is not an unusual event. So if we want to find out what's unique about the story of Abraham and Isaac, it is not that they're going up to sacrifice the, the firstborn. What's unique about the story of Abraham and Isaac is that God tells them not to. It's a dramatic way of emphasizing that things are different under the Hebrew dispensation that Yahweh is a different kind of God. He's not like the God of, of the Canaanites or the Moabites. He has expressly said, we're not going to do that anymore. And it's very dramatic. You see, it has Isaac carrying up the wood and laid across the altar. So for the people who originally produced this story and wondered about it, it had a kind of cathartic effect just to tell it. You see, they hadn't had their sensibilities worn out by television and so on. So they would go through this story, just would raise all of those confusions and emotions, and then suddenly the angel says, take a ram instead. And it's a different, going in a different direction. You understand that the story of Cain and Abel, the story of Abraham and Isaac, may have existed in the oral form for a long time. They didn't get written down until after a lot of other things which we think happened later in the Bible. But they were about ancient things, so they get put in the first of the Bible. But they're written down later. 
after the whole Exodus experience was digest and one looks back. So they under, there is a way of looking back and saying, from the very beginning, God was taking us in a different direction. We were not going in the direction of Romulus and Remus. We were not going in the direction of, of child sacrifice. But we were going to try to become a people that didn't rely on what Gerard calls the founding murder. So here we are now in our time, civilized and benefiting from all of this. And uh, so the question is, how far have we gotten in that enterprise? Well, we've gotten pretty far unless alarming circumstances develop. So here we have Newspaper article, April 88, datelined Israeli-occupied West Bank. As angry armed Jewish settlers turned the funeral of a teenage girl into a passionate rally, an army investigation was reported Thursday to have found a bullet from an Israeli guard's rifle in her body. The report raised questions about emotionally charged reports Wednesday that the 15-year-old girl had been stoned to death by Palestinian villagers. Army spokesman said late Thursday night that it was not clear what had caused the girl's death and that an investigation was continuing. By the way, one of the things that happens when these things do, when, when the a victimization episode occurs, is that it's surrounded by myth, mystification, so that nobody quite knows what happened. We're not quite certain what happened. Earlier, there were no doubts among the settlers at her funeral who cried, Revenge! Revenge! and in reference to the Arabs living in the area, expel them. The heart of the entire nation is boiling, Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir told thousands of mourners. God will avenge her blood. Every act of murder strengthens the nation of Israel, tightens, tightens it, and unifies it, ties it deeper to this land, deepens its roots, the Prime Minister said. Every act of murder makes us a stronger nation. The other one is from, um, not even a month later, Dateline Belfast. Two British soldiers were shot to death Saturday after mourners at an IRA funeral dragged them from their car, beat them with crowbars, and hoisted them naked before cheering onlookers. The soldiers, blood streaming from their heads, were then led to the top of a 12-foot high wall around the football field for the crowd to see, witnesses said. They were hauled behind the building and shots were heard. A short while later, their bullet-ridden bodies were found in a vacant lot. The funeral was completed without further incident. That was the last line of the article. The funeral was completed without further incident. Now, what happened, let's say, in Belfast? Both of these had to do with funerals. Watch out for funerals. Remind me, this will come up today. When somebody has died violently, you've got to watch out for funerals. We human beings have a tendency. And the tendency is to convert grief into grieving. The New Testament's going the other direction. That's what we have a tendency to do. Watch out for funerals. In the midst of one ritual, namely a funeral, another ritual inserted itself, namely the sacrificial ritual. These British soldiers just happened to be driving around. They didn't know their way around Belfast. They made the wrong turn, and there was the crowd. And the next thing they know, they're the victims of it. Now, what's going on? Is this history writ small, or what? What I'd like to do is tell the story, and I'll take some liberties with the Bible from time to time. Some of it will be apocryphal. I trust, I hope, that, that all of it will be faithful to the overall story that the Bible is telling us. Now, one of the things I must warn about in all of this is that I will be talking about these things which don't particularly seem to be very holy or 
pious or uplifting, for goodness. And we think, well, now, wait a minute. The Bible is supposed to encourage us to live in the love of God. What are you doing, Gil, uh, talking about all that stuff? Let me remind you, the, the problem is that we get caught up in this melodrama. That's what keeps us from living in the love of God. So the Bible not only has the ultimate goal of encouraging us to live in the love of God, but because we're distracted from that by this fascination with the melodrama, the Bible has this other penultimate or lesser goal that it has to spend a lot of time dealing with, and that is to, to snap us out of it, to make us wake up from that little fascination with the melodrama, and to say to us, hey, there's something more important going on here. You're only alive once. The universe has been going for 15 billion years. It's going to go for another 15, probably. You've got your, if you're lucky, three score and ten. What are you doing? Wasting it, like Mrs. Shortly, on what's happening on the red clay road, when the peacock's right there in front of you. See, I'm mixing metaphors. Do you understand what, you understand what I'm saying? The Bible is saying, you've got to wake up out of it, and it's giving us texts that are designed to say, hey, we're trying to do it differently. We're trying to live in a different cosmos. So I want to tell a story, which I admit at the beginning is, is, is perhaps unorthodox. One of the things that Gerard's research has pointed out is that these episodes, these primitive episodes of victimization, are surrounded by mythology. Mythology in the negative sense, as to say something that romanticizes what happened and tells a romantic version of it, so that we don't hear about what really took place. We hear about the way the West was won, but we don't hear about the genocide. So the myth tends to come in and camouflage it. And if that's the case, then even texts like the Hebrew text, which are strikingly candid, even they have to be questioned because we say, now something may not be getting through here. What's really happened? We know that these stories have been theologized. These stories have been told in retrospect as a way of telling not what happened, the events that happened, but what the meaning of what happened was. So we know that's happened. So if we want to find out what may have actually happened, and, and from a Girardian point of view, we may actually want to go back and find out what actually happened there. We may want to find that out. Not because we have a fundamentalist interest in literal, but because it may tell us something about what gave rise to the whole Hebrew uh, religious thrust. The central event in the Bible See, there I go. The central event in the Bible is the Exodus, slavery to freedom. That's what the Bible's all about. It's an Exodus story. From Egypt to the Promised Land, what I sometimes call history to the eschatological communion, from history to the eschaton, from some kind of little preoccupation with all of that interplay to something nobler and more worthy of us, slavery to freedom. That's the thing. So if we go back to the biblical story in Exodus and we say, now what, happened? what actually happened? We're now, you see, we're now interested in details. We're interested. What gave rise? Because this is where it really starts, is in Exodus. What gave rise to this strange religious movement that we know of as today as Judaism, uh, the Hebrew religious impulse? Where did it come from? Was there something unique about its origin that makes this literature unique as, as people have have felt it to be. So I want to go back and ask that question. The key figure, of course, is Moses. 
his name is a, a suffix, an Egyptian name. Uh, Egyptian name would be Ramoses, which means son, son of Ra, the sun god. Uh, here's a guy who is, whose name is simply Moses. He's lost his uh, cultural identification. He's abandoned it, perhaps. He's forsworn it. Or he's, uh, he, he's perhaps been disinherited from it. But he has some Egyptian pedigree that has been cut off. He's, he's a product of the Egyptian Harvard and Yale, uh, but now he no longer identifies with that. He's simply without lineage, in that, at least in the Egyptian sense of the term. At some point in his midlife, he begins to identify with the apiru. The apiru is the originally Egyptian word of mild contempt for the laborers in the massive Egyptian public works projects. Apiru means something like wetback. So the Apiru, later to become Hebrew, he begins to develop a, a sensitivity to them. Now whether this sensitivity has genetic connections, whether he has Hebrew blood, the Bible says he does, uh, or whether he simply identifies morally, politically, so to speak, with, the, with these oppressed ones, or it's some combination of the two. He begins to identify with them. He walks through the brickyard where the Hebrews are doing the stoop labor, and he identifies with them. And at one critical moment, this great story, you see, he walks through and he sees a slave driver beating a Hebrew, and an impulse awakens in him. And it's a moral impulse. It is, we shouldn't do that. And he takes that impulse to the place where it so often is taken. He decides to slay the oppressor, and he kills the slave driver and buries him in the sand. And he thinks, well, that's how you deal. And he doesn't even think. It's, it's, this, isn't, this isn't Greek philosophy. This is, this is Hebrew storytelling. He goes away. But we imagine that he says to himself, that's how you deal with it. You see, that's how you deal with it. And he comes back the next day, and a Hebrew is beating a Hebrew. That's a wonderful thing. We, you can get a Ph.D. in sociology and not learn what he learned overnight. That's not the way to go. Oppression is simply conditional on who's got the power. We're not going to be able to eliminate it by eliminating the current oppressors. He doesn't want to go out and launch a historical project which is simply gives that whole system an opportunity to reestablish itself on another terrain. Now I imagine at that moment, the next day, the story says he goes out and sees two Hebrews beating him. He tries to break it up, and they snap back at him. What are you doing? That's an education. The point of it is, it seems to me, if we're going to eliminate what's called man's inhumanity to man, it's going to have to be something other than simply turning the tables. It has to be something more profound than that. And for that and a number of other reasons, he leaves Egypt. He drops out. Turns out he goes to the right place. He goes to Midian, where there is a little clan headed by Jethro. And Jethro is a pious, rural Semite. And in the presence of Jethro's rural piety, Moses learns something about Yahweh, this primitive nomadic god that is the god of the wild places, not the god of the cities, the god of the wild places. And we don't know anything more than that, but we know that he picked something up there. He picked up stories of Abraham, stories of the patriarchs, 
One imagines he learns this from Jethro. I don't know. You don't know. Nobody knows. One imagines. 